quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Make friends, shake hands, kiss babies, do what you got to do. Find out who the players are in the REI world. Everybody knows everybody you'll be able to tell who the players are that are actually out to help you and that want to do things and the ones who just want to take your money. So start. There's so much information out there. This podcast is a great example of that. Start. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Andy McQuaid. Andy is joining us from Rochester, New York. He is the principal of the arm companies, which provides procurement and management consulting to clients in the real estate industry. Andy's portfolio consists of first position private money lanes on self storage. Andy, thank you for joining us and how are you today? I am well, Ash. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. It's our pleasure to have you. Andy, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure, absolutely. So my background is I came from 20 plus years on the supply side of the industry for real estate and construction. So started driving a forklift at a lumberyard at 17 years old and ended up working for a couple of really big players in the industry. Did that for a little over 20 years. Actually, it was because of that job that I started getting involved in a local RIA and started doing some investing on my own and learning about the industry and all that other stuff. And then 2019, I left my old career in building materials and started my own consulting firm, helping real estate operators buy materials smarter, saving them a little bit of money, helping them make more money, increasing NOI and one thing led to another, and here we are now. I wrote a book, which maybe will come out at some point in the future, having some trademark issues right now, but it is what it is. I am here and happy to help and add value where I can. I do a ton of volunteering with the local RIA. I've been helping them operate and go through some change management stuff for the last couple of years, whole new board, whole new officers, tons of new events. The group is on fire. It's great to see because I've been there since 2008 and it is a different animal than it used to be. Let me tell you. What are the biggest mistakes people make when acquiring materials for construction? There's two big ones I see. People new to it really spend way too much time, honestly, shopping between multiple different places instead of trying to build a relationship and add value to the place that they're buying them from. It's not adversarial, but it's almost adversarial, right? They look to acquire materials without any type of thought to how is the service going to be? How is the availability going to be? And a ton of them got crushed during the pandemic. I got more calls in the pandemic from people who shopped that way, looking for everything under the sun, like everyone else. And the people that I didn't get calls from were the people who had those relationships where the vendors were like, listen, you take care of us. We're going to take care of you. So those people who just were going for, I call it the race to the bottom, going for the bottom dollar cheapest is the best thing out there, they got burned. And it showed because they lost a ton of money for their investors. Timeline stretched out like crazy. Everybody had delays. Everybody had issues. Everybody's costs went up, but they're the ones who suffered the worst. Yeah, I very much agree with you. And that philosophy, not only for materials, but all of our vendors, 
our lenders, everybody we deal with, treat them as partners, not as commodities. I've known people who have been in this game for 20 plus years. When COVID hit, they couldn't find a plumber, a roofer, an electrician. And I never had a problem because I've used the same people. I don't price shop them. I build relationships with them. So it's the same thing with suppliers. And I don't know that I would have thought of that. I would have thought of suppliers as commodities. Right. But that's a good point that you bring up. What else do people do wrong? And how can we get a better price when we're shopping for materials? So some if of we it, don't it, shop it around. Some of it is just about being honest, letting them know what's really coming down the pipe. Every salesperson in building materials, whether it's MRO supplies from HD Supply or whether it's at a big box store or a local lumberyard, everybody who walks in the door is going to spend millions of dollars and they all have a ton of projects and a ton of work. And how often does that really pan out? So that there needs to be an open conversation, I guess, cooperation. You don't have to open your books. You don't have to show them what you have signed for contracts, but having an idea and working with them to plan around disruptions so they can stock their inventory up. There's a ton of processes that happen on the backside that I'm really familiar with from being there for 20 years on how they get their products, how they pay their people, how they order stuff. And I help my customers figure that out. So the average Joe who's getting into it, number one, ask people who are already doing it. Ask them who they're buying from. Who's the best in the area? Who's your go-to that's adding value to you on the vendor side? It's not a common thing where there's a relationship like that, but there are some players out there that are really, really good at doing the rehab and reno on multifamily or flips or single family, small resi, whatever it happens to be. And that's their wheelhouse and they know what the expectations are already. So there's less of a learning curve there. So I would start by finding out who's doing it and see if you can get in on a relationship like that based on your volume. You're always going to be at the end of the day, strapped by your volume. So the one-stop shop that everybody despises are the box stores. And it's like one out of 10 is capable of actually handling a flip or handling any type of real remodeling construction job. But there are investors who use them all the time for huge projects. And it just takes that relationship to make that work. If you're just walking in off the street and you're shopping the aisles and bringing it up to the pro desk or the register now, that's not a good way to do it. There's other ways, but your buying power, your volume that you're going to do, try and max that out. So there's some skin in the game for the vendor too. Don't be the guy who says, oh, well, I'm just going to spread the wealth around. And then you go to 15 different people and they're all getting five grand. What happens when a problem happens and there's not enough margin, not enough money in there for them to want to fix it for you? So that the relationship has to work both ways. It can't just be a taking. There's got to be value on both sides. Allow me to push back. Why wouldn't I walk in there trying to make pretend I'm a big developer and I'm going to be spending millions of dollars? Because typically those are the people who give you the list and then never buy it or they cherry pick what you give them pricing on and they don't buy the whole package one or two times and you burn that relationship. They're not going to go out of their way to help you. They're not going to give you the best pricing. They're just going to run it through whatever computer system they have and say, here you go. Good luck. So there is a certain amount of burnout on the sales side when you're dealing with that same shtick every single day. It's one thing to come in and flex. It's another thing if you follow through. If you don't follow through, they're going to figure it out real fast. And they're just going to stop trying. Andy, you seem like a really honest person that wants to help people. What if your counterpart at a different company is a used car salesman that just wants to beat you up on price? They see that you're green and they know they got you. Well, that's a tough one. 
on the material side, you probably get taken to the cleaners a couple times, honestly. There's always that learning curve, the school of hard knocks. It happened to me when I was a new guy. And it's not an easy industry. You have to have thick skin to deal with it. And that's part of the reason why I outsource what I do now, because a lot of people just aren't prepared to do that. So they'll have me come in and negotiate usually big stuff, national contracts and whatever, because you can't really blow smoke in, in those cases. For the new guys starting out at the RIA, in this local market, I know everybody. So I say, hey, this guy at Sherwood Williams, he's going to take care of you. This guy over here, this is the only person at the Home Depot store you want to talk to. Same thing at Lowe's, same thing at the local lumberyard, same thing at the plumbing supply house, right at the Ferguson's. This is where you want to go. This is who you want to talk to. And if you feel like dealing with other people, great, good for you, but good luck. And the biggest thing is people don't understand what their time value of money is. So a lot of the newer, greener people who are out there will drive from place to place, shopping things out. Are you paying yourself a dollar an hour? You're going four places shopping this thing. You're saving 50 bucks, but what is that worth to you? Like, what is your time worth? What else could you spending your time doing? So there's a certain amount of just putting two and two together that doesn't necessarily always happen until they start to realize time is the most limited thing that they have at their disposal as a real estate investor. It's not the money. You can find capital for stuff anywhere. Andy, we're building millions of dollars of strip malls and flex buildings in the Southeast. Are you able to consult on deals all over or are yes. you confined to a geographical area? Nope. I go everywhere. Mostly remote. I get on planes. I was supposed to be in Ohio this last month, three days a week. My client had a divorce and this huge messy thing and he's getting sued. And I'm like, okay, you know what? When you figure it out, I'll come. But for now, let's hold off. So that actually gave me time to spend with my son, taking him to sail camp every day and getting caught up on my podcast and starting my blog and dealing with my trademark attorney and all the other stuff that was just hanging there where I was working in my business and not on my business, right? So I do both. I do some passive investing through hard money. And then my actual day-to-day -day is working with investors and working with the industry. So if there's something necessary, I'll fly out there. A lot of times I can do the negotiations. I can do a lot of the specifications and a lot of the technical stuff right here from my computer. Is there a minimum dollar amount for a project that would allow you to engage? Typically, I get involved on the procurement side. I do outsource CPO services, so I'll come in and I'll actually help them set up their procurement operations so they can hire somebody to hand it off. I do actual procurement outsourcing where I'll help them with a project as far as getting specifications, lining up vendors, getting pricing and bids. And then for an actual project, my main wheelhouse is commercial multifamily. So in those cases, I will come down and look at the operation. Usually I don't get involved in a project that's less than 250 or 300 doors on a site because it's not worth my time at that point, my cost, my fee for the owner, but a 300 door project, typically I'm able to produce about six figures in savings and efficiency through some of the stuff I do. So it's worth it for them at that point to bring me in and do that. Most of my clients have traditionally been larger multifamily operators like 8, 10, 12, 15, 25,000 doors. But I've worked obviously with the local RIA. I've helped people. I've done due diligence. I've done walks. I got a friend who's closing on a 60 unit building here. Hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I'm charging a thousand bucks just to go there, make the list, make the recommendations, give him stuff. And then I'm just going to be like, here you go. Here's what I think you need to do. And this is how you need to do it. And good luck. How do people charge for services like this? How do you charge basically? So I look at the scope. My fees are value-based. So it's more, what's the scope of the project and what can I save you? I'll do an initial overview, like a due diligence walk or whatever for like a flat fee. It's just basically you pay for me to come out 
and for my time there, room and board and a little bit on top for me. And that's it, whatever it may be. It could be a thousand, it could be 2,500, it could be 5,000. It just depends on where it is. And if they don't want to engage me from that point, they just want to take all the stuff that I recommended and everything I listed. Cool. They can do that. If they want to bring me in, that's when we do. I have like a ridiculous master services agreement and all sorts of legal stuff for my insurance and whatever that has to be done. But that's more when I come in and help them actually operate a change management project or purchase things for them or line things up so that they can succeed and scale. A lot of what I do is getting people prepped to scale because they don't have the systems. They don't know how to do the systems. They don't know how to negotiate with vendors. They don't know what's out there for systems. So some of them are on Yardy, some of them are on one site, some of them are on all these other systems and they're not using it to its fullest potential. And it's kind of, okay, well, I can't set this up for you internally, but here's what you need this to look like when you're done. Hire a developer or call the vendor and have them help you do this because this is really important if you're going to have the tools to scale. What real estate investments are you a part of? I have a bunch of money in self-storage in Mississippi, Alabama. I'm friends with some of the storage rebels. So Mike Wagner Storage Rebellion actually started here in Rochester. So there's a ton of overlap between the RIA and those guys. So like Shane Chapin, Scott Spear, and some of these other storage players that are at the Sin Summit and some of the other big events for storage are, I guess, my partners. I provide them money. So they do a lot of the due diligence. They bring me deals. I look at them. I invest through my 401k, through my wife's self-directed IRA, through my son's savings. So it's like a family thing between my side and funding those deals. But it's a safe asset and it's for money right now with interest rates what they are. Go in at two years, simple interest, make more than the stock market will pay you. And there's something solid there. <laughs> and I'll do equity. I'll actually do equity shares and stuff from time to time, but I don't have anything right now. What do you charge for lending out your capital? Right now, it's about 12 to 14%, depending on the deal. I try not to charge points. I try to just do simple interest because I don't like math. Uh, so it's just a question of what I've got ready to place. And I have other relatives in the family that have capital ready to play. So it just depends on the project and what my warm fuzzies are. I try to keep it to 12 to 24 months, depending on what it is. I really like storage. So I'll do 24 months on storage because that's about the normal turn time if there's construction and getting it stabilized before they refi or sell. But I've done 12 month stuff. I've done six month stuff. It just varies depending on the deal. Every deal is different. I like property friendly, landlord friendly states. I won't invest in New York, California, Michigan, Ohio is really good, but some of the stuff scares me. So I'm iffy on Ohio, but pretty much. Why? What scares you? There's just a lot of saturation and a lot of activity. And I am just nervous that the wheels are going to fall off sometime soon. And I haven't, is... spent, I haven't spent a lot of due diligence, but what I can say is I started moving stuff into Ohio for one of my really large multifamily operators when I was still working at one of the suppliers and I was going to Ohio pretty regularly. And that was eight years ago. So I'm very nervous that things are going to slow down rapidly. When you say saturation, is that for storage, multifamily, both? It could be both. There's a lot of storage out there that operators and investors are buying without necessarily the same level of due diligence that my team looks at. So there's certain population minimums and requirements and income levels, and they do the whole, what's this look like? Are people moving in, people moving out? What's the job market look like? How is this working? What kind of multifamily? What's the radius that we expect us to tap? There's 15 or 20 different levels of diligence that they do in these reports when they look to buy a deal, which I appreciate. But 
I see a lot of storage operators that are just buying anything at any price and maybe even building or planning to build and cost increases and labor supply and delays and everything else be danged. I don't know that I want to play in those markets where that's the case because that scares the pants off of me because it's not a long-term proven solution. It's a spike. I try to avoid spikes. If I'm putting hard money behind it, I like steady <laughs> guarantee of return of capital at the very least. I've got to push back on you a little bit because I've been in Ohio for 25 years and I think we've had slow and steady growth. To me, when I think of a spike, I think of the Phoenix MSA, Dallas, Houston, oh, yeah. Miami, those places, right? So those are the ones that scare me. But a lot of the Midwest, I think there's great cash flow. People are starting to find out about that. There is a lot of manufacturing coming back. So just my opinion. Another question for you is you've been in the real estate industry for over 20 years. Why are you not actively investing in deals, taking down your own deals? Look, you've gone to all these RIA meetings for over a dozen years. How have you not gotten that bug? I have had the bug. My wife, however, is another story. And I just got her on the boat literally within the last couple of years. And it's been tough because part of this is convincing her, hey, maybe we should look outside of New York State to do these things. And hey, let's go over here. Because all she heard all the time, especially in New York, was the doom and gloom of the regulation and rent control and good cause eviction and all this craziness that's going on in the New York market. I'm like, listen, we know people that are investing all over the place. Let's just go. So I convinced her at first to allow us to invest my son's savings into storage and that type of stuff. And that was really what started the whole thing for her was seeing the returns and seeing that income. And then once the check started hitting, then she was, oh, okay, I kind of get it now. But it's not her world, right? She went to SU, graduated with an art degree, has worked in insurance for the last 10 years. I don't ask, I don't know. I get that. So her risk tolerance is just much different. Yeah. And that's fair. Yeah. And for me... I've had a lot of people approach me to do deals in the past, and I'll usually lean into the consulting side, and sometimes I'll trade consulting services for equity, depending on what it is, helping to run the operation, helping to find crews, helping to get the stuff in there, running the ops side, but it's a one-off. It's not something that I do frequently, and it's a minor part. For me, the main reason that I wasn't doing more actively was partially because New York and I like stuff that I can see and touch. But the other part is I launched this thing in 2019, right before the pandemic. And I had to pivot like a crazy person <laughs> to keep busy for two years. So my capital was dried up like crazy. I'm like, nope, I'm good. And then everything started opening up again. And all of a sudden I'm back in demand, especially with the interest rates being what they are and people hunting for deals and hunting for doing better in ways to increase their NOI. It's like, well, one of the first places you can go to increase NOI is cutting your costs. And it's not just products. It's being efficient in your maintenance operations and finding ways to do this, 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 and this. And there's just a laundry list of things they can put in place that fell by the wayside. Free money made people real lazy and their operations suffered, but they didn't know it until capital got expensive. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, how can we do this? And some of it's just going back to the fundamentals from 20 years ago. It's not like it's rocket science, right? Having a budget, having standards, having specs, making sure things are being done correctly, reducing windshield time, making sure that your guys are spending their time doing what they should be doing to resolve issues quickly so they can go on to help you make more money through cost avoidance, through keeping all of that opportunity cost at a minimum. And it adds up really fast. 
really fast. One property that I did last year, it was 720 doors and just changing three things. And it was like 140 grand back in their pocket in NOI. We'll get back to the show with the first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you thinking about investing in multifamily real estate? Need some insight on how it's done? On the Small X podcast, multifamily investor Nico Salgado interviews the top multifamily investors in the nation to uncover the secrets and strategies behind their success. He also features newer multifamily investors chronicling their journeys for a full year so you can learn alongside other investors. Nico believes that it only takes a small axe to build an empire. So if you're ready to build your multifamily empire, check out the Small Axe Podcast with Nico Salgado on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. What were those three things? It was an older distressed property that had not seen a renovation or an upgrade in 20 something years. And it was literally, okay, let's go to the utility. Let's get some money so we can do toilet, shower heads, aerators, thermostats, furnace upgrades throughout the property. That was 80,000 a year in NOI back, just in reducing regular recurring costs. Another one was fixing their maintenance stuff. It was a huge campus, right? 700 and something doors. There was like 50 buildings, very, very large campus. And they were hemorrhaging labor time. The guys were walking up from wherever to the office at the very front of the campus for every single work order, every single job. Meanwhile, they're using fully fleshed out Yardi system and they're not taking advantage of the maintenance call order and even their tracking time, time to repair. No idea what they were doing. Had no inventory on site. They were running to Lowe's and Home Depot and whatever. And that was like 20 grand a year just in lost labor time. And then there was some other just functional stuff on the property. LED lighting and miscellaneous stuff and tax savings that they weren't taking advantage of through the utility and rebates through vendors and just in material costs alone for the rehab project, they were overpaying for probably three or four different categories, not on the labor side, just on materials. So it was a little bit of everything, but without that top-down view, everybody's in the business, right? Everybody works in the business and they can see what's in front of them, but they can't necessarily see it the way they need to, to really understand it. Because who goes out and advertises what they should be paying for product? Do you see a vendor saying, oh, I sell this to this guy for 10 bucks less than I sell it for you? No, that doesn't happen. But when you have access and you see a lot of the books and you help them run their operations, why are you paying this for this product? This should be way cheaper. Who are you buying this from? Why are you paying this? And sometimes the light bulb goes off. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's a relationship thing. The price has to be right but the service has to go with it. If you're going to buy something for 20% less, but then your deliveries are taking four or five weeks and they're always late and they're missing stuff or worse yet, 
you pay three grand for product and you get 20 different delivery trucks. How is that saving you money? So there's a lot to it. It's so fragmented and so regional that every single location almost is different. Andy, do you recommend larger operators bring construction in-house and become vertically integrated? We've actually had a lot of good luck with that. Sometimes there's still subs that are brought in, but a lot of my bigger operators who are very successful at turning and burning, they will buy the materials, they will set the specs, they will have the materials in the units, they will manage the supply chain side. That's kind of where I come in and they'll bring the labor in, but they manage the construction. They GC it. They bring in all the subs to do it. All of them prefer to have crews and they'll operate some of their own teams. Sometimes it's maintenance people being repurposed. Other times it's actual construction people that they hire, but depending on a timeline, they'll bring in outsiders and just say, we have all the materials. We have all of the stuff. I just want you to show up and do this, but you're buying paint because I don't want you to steal paint from me or create waste. So you can go buy the paint over here and this is our price and here's our colors and our spec. But outside of that, it's actually one of the best models for them that I've seen and worked with. And it's always a lot easier because they tend to plan ahead, which means that you can go to your vendors and help them plan ahead so that they know what the expectations are so that you're not waiting for materials. It's already at their location ready to deploy when you're ready to make that phone call. So you can actually turn these units sometimes if it's a gut getting countertops and everything, everything could be set up and in place where they're in and out in 14 days. That's really the goal. And it's been really hard to hit because of all the material delays and planning issues that we've seen since the pandemic, but it's starting to get back to that. We're seeing a lot of that stuff open back up where you can get these things turned and burned in 14 to 21 days. You're not stretching out 45 to 60 days with a unit not cash flowing anymore. What about, it seems to be a trend where people are buying materials more so from China directly, getting containers sent over. Have you seen a lot of that? That's been something that's been hot and cold and it varies by market. I've seen a lot of operators go down that road and some of them had issues with damage and loss and theft and warehousing and delays causing them to pay more in drayage and other things where the savings that they were seeing were being eroded. But again, it's case by case. It's very dependent on what they're buying, where they're buying it from, how much they're saving, what the cost of capital is. It's easy to buy container loads of product when capital's at three or 4%. It's a whole nother thing when you're flexing it out at seven, 8% or more for a project, and then you're sitting on it for a year or two. So some of the math has changed a little bit in there, but people are still doing it. And those vendors are still at IBS every single year, knocking on people's doors, taking business cards and trying to set those relationships up. What is IBS? International Builders Show. So it's a National Association of Home Builders thing. Yep. So it's in Vegas again, coming up, I think in February of next year. And then it's going back to Orlando. They do like a three on three off type of thing. What about warehousing? That was very popular pre-COVID. Is that not the case anymore? It tends to be. A lot of them figured out they can make more money actually by leasing out their industrial space and their warehousing space to other people than keeping it in-house. So that has changed a little bit. But again, it comes down to their capacity as a company to manage that inventory and to have the controls in place to make sure that they're not going to lose. And that has become harder as labor has tightened and they've had to pay more for quality people. That whole calculation has shifted a little bit. So it's worth it if you've got the controls to track that inventory to make sure you're not getting damage and loss, to make sure you're not getting theft, to make sure that your rates aren't going through the roof or that your opportunity cost 
to put that space to use for something else isn't going to outweigh the benefit for the company. I always like as much control as possible over those projects from a planning and implementation and launching standpoint, because without those in place, it can be chaos real fast. It just takes one crew of workers. And I had this the other day, I walked into a shop that I had set up a year ago. I walked down there just to do a real quick audit for the owner. And there's boxes of brand new faucets ripped open, parts taken out, stacked six high, like all this craziness. And it only takes one person who just doesn't want to follow the program or doesn't want to take care of the inventory management piece to ruin the whole thing. So there's got to be that inspect what you expect and hold people accountable. If you have a system and you have a process and you have all these cool controls, don't let one person come in and just throw it all down the drain. That's opportunity cost and cost avoidance. And it can really impact things because at the end of the day, we did the audit and they had lost just through that type of operational sloppiness for the last three months. They've lost a few thousand dollars and that's nothing to sneeze at. But when you consider that this guy's got thousands of doors, well, where else is this happening? So we had these things set up. Everything was good to go. Have all the computer systems in place, have all the ordering stuff in place. And yet here we are a bunch of useless junk that's thousands of dollars worth of parts now that can't be put anywhere until maybe that one time when that one part is needed. Got it. What are you seeing today? And we're in August of 23, as far as supply chain, backlogs, and price for materials. Price increases have slowed down a little bit. Lumber started to pick up again a few weeks ago. Not that that's a huge part for rehab and reno, but for new construction, it does have a part. Appliances have really opened up. So all of the delays and price increases on the appliance side, again, depending on brand, there's still some that are pretty backlogged. But for the most part, the domestic brands, the GEs, the Maytags, the Whirlpool, whatever, they're mostly on time. Their prices are kind of what they are. They're obviously higher than they were pre-pandemic and even probably from last year, but they're not doing that, oh, hey, we're going to do another 10%, another 15% price increase on this. And you can actually now wheel and deal and you can actually negotiate some of those down again, where prior there, if you want this, you're going to pay what we tell you you're going to pay. Now they're back to, to the table and they're willing to negotiate on a lot of that, where prior they weren't. The other stuff that's out there, commodity-wise, it's going to ebb and flow. Oil prices go up. We're going to see shingles and plastic products. So windows and siding and whatever, they're going to raise the price. If it comes down, it's going to come down. Non-commodity stuff, all your hardware, some of the carpet and flooring, because they only negotiate those prices annually. So they're not taking price increases as the oil market moves. You'll see those stay the same. Paint and stuff. I think we're done for the year seeing crazy paint increases. God, I hope so. Cause January was not good for a lot of my customers, but you know, we're still getting good prices compared to some of the other players out there based on volume. And that's a lot of what it comes down to is that they'll eat some of those cost increases and price increases. If you have the relationship, they won't pass the full buck to you. They'll pass more of it on to other people who either aren't doing as much volume or that aren't as easy to work with, et cetera, et cetera. Why are HVAC prices going up monthly? <laughs> ah, so labor is part of it. Demand and supply, same thing with switchgear. I haven't seen any relief because again, I do a lot with the National Association of Home Builders and just switchgear is still a beast for tracts. A lot of it has to do with this electrification push. HVAC, I haven't honestly figured out and I try to avoid it as much as possible. 
that's one of those things where we'll just go to bid and we'll have the subs provide materials for that unless it's something where we're stuck with a system. If we're stuck with a 20-year-old boiler system, okay, maybe we'll go and we'll bid getting those replaced, but we're not going to go and pull all of the baseboards and stuff like that to do a conversion at this point. It's just too expensive. Same thing with doing any kind of ducting, venting change in these existing buildings. It's gotten ridiculous where we're just finding ways to work around it and keep what's there. Yeah. Andy, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Start. (laughs) Don't be like me and not start. Start. I don't blame my wife for anything. She's awesome because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now without her, but definitely start. It's a mindset shift. I was raised by parents that were born during the depression, 30s. I was an oops. My parents were in their 40s when they had me. So I was raised with this completely sideways, backwards mindset about money. And I was living at my means when I was working at W2, making six figures a year. And I don't know where any of it went. (laughs) It was just stupid. Great trips to Aruba and Ireland and all this other stuff. But no, don't do that. When you're in your 20s, make all your money, bank it and invest in real estate. That is the best thing you can do. Work your tail off on a W2, take all your extra money, live below your means and invest. That is the smartest play you could possibly make. Speaking from hindsight, I'm only 44. But it's definitely where I suggest people go. Just start. Go to a real estate investors meeting, make friends, shake hands, kiss babies, do what you got to do. Find out who the players are in the REI world. Everybody knows everybody. You will be able to tell who the players are that are actually out to help you and that want to do things and the ones who just want to take your money. So start. There's so much information out there. This podcast is a great example of that. Start. Andy, let's go into the best ever lightning round. What's the best ever book you recently read? All right. So the one I'm reading right now that I am late to the course, because why not, is Never Split the Difference. I think I'm halfway through something like that right now. Chris Voss. Great book. It's awesome. A ton of stuff in here I sort of already knew, but it was never put into words. So I'm like, this is good. The other one is The Consulting Bible, which really applies to me. He just came out with a second edition. It's updated for new stuff. But that's where my value-based fees and how I run my consulting business comes from is from Alan Weiss. So if you're in the consulting business at all, Alan is the king of getting your value for your intellectual property out of your clients. He's the champ. Andy, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I do volunteer a lot with the RIA, but I don't really consider that necessarily giving back. I get involved in a lot of the veterans homes and people with developmental disabilities and i'll do pro bono projects for them i try to do it more than once a year but my time it's just tough to but i'll go in and i'll actually help them streamline their operations because most of who i work with are providing these homes i'm not working with the actual caregivers i'm working with the companies that own the buildings that operate the properties that make them happen and give them that space. So I'll go in and I'll just pro bono stuff for them to help them streamline their stuff and audit their books, make sure they're paying what they should be paying, make sure they're getting the service levels they should be, make suggestions on where I see that they can save money. And I meet some really great people and get to tour some really cool properties and facilities where they're doing awesome stuff for people and helping people out. It makes me feel like I'm making a little bit of a difference. Andy, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Well, I'm on every social media thing out there. So if you just look for Andy McQuaid, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn is the best place because I spend the most time on LinkedIn, honestly. That's where a lot of my real estate network lies. But I also have my personal website. You can go to andymcquade.com. You can check out the website for the podcast. It's tcomethod.com. 
I get emails through both of those. There's ways to message me on those two platforms. However you want, you can shoot me an email, andy at andymcquade.com. I will respond or at any of my other businesses. Andy, awesome. Thank you for your time today, sharing some great insights about supply chain, how to maximize your ROI, a lot of things that most people probably don't think about. So thank you for your time today. Thanks, Ash. I appreciate it. It was great. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.